According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, we have something very unique in the life of Christ's ministry. Do you know how many episodes... In the Life of Christ chronology, when you harmonize all the Gospels, do you know how many episodes are featured in all four Gospels? Not many. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, you have the... Uh, not many. <laughs> the feeding of the 5,000. Um, the triumphal entry. <laughs> okay. Maybe one more prior to that. I'm trying to remember if the... Uh, I think there was one more prior to that, like the temptation wilderness or something, the, the wilderness temptations. Anyway, there, there aren't that many episodes that are featured. And you can take a glance at your Harmony of the Gospels and, and just scan down the page and uh, they will jump out at you because there are not that many of them. Well, today we are beginning the final week of work at Jerusalem. It's titled in your Harmony of the Gospels as Jesus's final week of work at Jerusalem. And um, I believe I have abbreviated that JFW at J, something like that. I'll, I'll find a consistent naming convention and abbreviation system to use. Um, so we get episode number one, starting today, the triumphal entry, Matthew chapter 21. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, I'm going to pronounce that about 15 different ways between now and the end of the hour, so... I'm um, guaranteed one of the ways that I pronounce them is, is likely to be correct. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill... What was spoken of through the prophet, saying to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, that is the Matthew record. That is the shortest of the four accounts. And uh, we will use that, I guess, as a base text. Then we'll bounce to the others to bring in the... Uh, the uh, parallel details and things that are not included in this uh, in this particular record. Before we begin any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that uh, no uh, carnality crept in between prayer meeting and here, and uh, we'll make sure we're in fellowship and, and prepared to study truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. And Father, we are thankful for 317 completed lessons. 
all the teaching you provided for us that has taken us through the uh, the different stages, Father, the birth and adolescence of Jesus, the um, early Judean ministry uh, at the Jordan River with John the Baptist, the uh, Galilean ministry, the last Judean and Prean ministry. And now, Father, we're beginning the, the home stretch, as it were. This is Palm Monday, and uh, we are approaching Good Friday and all the details of what we have to study for this Passion Week. And, and I thank you for it. I thank you that we're going to study through Friday, through Resurrection Sunday, and then for the, uh, the 40 days beyond, Father, of the resurrection ministry of our Savior leading up to the, uh, to the great ascension. So, Father, uh, we're uh, looking forward to all that you have for us. You've brought us to this, to this uh, milestone, and we're eager, Father, now to, uh, to see what you have for us in the days ahead. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay. I left a note for Pastor Mark Perkins. I'm not sure uh, when he'll see it or we'll have a chance to touch base a little bit. He has been in a Life of Christ series longer than we have. And uh, it is interesting. We're almost the same place now. Um, but he, uh, he obviously plunges into more detail than we do. But he has a, uh, a double the opportunity because we're doing this on a Wednesday. And he's doing his at Front Range Bible Church in Denver, Colorado. He's doing his uh, twice on Sundays. He's got two Sunday morning sessions. And the Sunday morning series has been given over to Life of Christ now for, uh, for a very long time. And, uh, and I appreciate that. So anyway, we'll have an opportunity to touch base and see how that goes. Well, we've gone through Matthew already. Let's, uh, let's look at Mark. Grab a couple of the extra details here. John is the one that's the most different out of all of them, you might expect. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. No mention of the uh, donkey, the colt's mother. In fact, Matthew is the only gospel record that mentions the uh, mother donkey. Uh, All the other gospel accounts simply make reference to the cult itself. Not a contradiction, just one additional detail that Matthew gives. We're reading now from Mark 11, and uh, we'll recognize in the Mark, Luke, and John passages, there's no mention of the mother donkey. <clears throat> if anyone, uh, But it is an interesting note that this is a young cult on which no one yet has ever sat. So this is not a trained animal. This is not a very old animal. This certainly is not an animal that's accustomed to having a rider. Okay? And it's quite remarkable. A lot of, lot's been written on this uh, by horse people. Uh, you know, in riding on the, the uh, skills necessary to break a horse, to, to train it, to uh, get it accustomed to people, and so on and so forth. This is actually rather miraculous how this uh, colt, uh, he just sits on it and has a complete mastery over this uh, over this animal here. <clears throat> Verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. Uh, we're going to get the idea that this colt owner has been waiting for this day. And this colt has been prepared specifically for this reason. And then uh, they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them... Um, what are you doing untying the colt? We get the idea that they were prepositioned as well. 
the colt's owner had them standing there waiting. Just wait. See who comes and unties this colt today. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus, put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road, and the others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the field. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And we'll stop reading there with verse 10, because I think when we get to verse 11, then we've got to deal with the temple and the second cleansing of the temple and the things there. All right, join me now in Luke, Luke 19. <coughs> Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. Again, you got the pericope heading of triumphal entry. Those little publishing blurbs are not in the inspired text. They're added by your modern English publishers. Luke 19, 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt. Tied, on which no one uh, yet has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why? Its owners now said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Let me read just a little bit more here. 41. Yes, all the way through 44. <clears throat> Verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. I find this interesting. We're going to discuss this. In the midst of all the joy and the singing and the happiness, um, he's weeping and they're not tears of joy. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come when you will, uh, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. All right, then finally, <clears throat> John 12 verses 12 through 19. John 12 verses 12 through 19. This is just a quick reading through all four of the accounts to glean the initial impressions, to make the short, obvious observations, and then we'll go back in detail and uh, spell out the points of study and uh, make comment for application here in just a moment. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. On the next day, and I believe this is the next day after the day after the Saturday. We'll discuss that in the timing on this. This is Palm Monday, uh, despite the fact that Roman tradition all this time has called it Palm Sunday. 
On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. All right. And of course, they're complaining about that as if that is somehow a problem. (laughs) All right. The whole world is going after him. All right. Let's uh, get some detail on this and spell out some things. We've got a bit of work to do today, and I'm not sure how well we'll do it. I I left the Bible software up and running so we can make use of that and hopefully have some uh, have some additional information we can bring in. First of all, the geography. And I'll try to get some maps up, too, while I'm thinking about it. Since the software is running, we can go ahead and do that. But you can just picture the city of Jerusalem, all right, and then the eastern boundary. The, uh, the temple sits on the eastern boundary of the, of the city, okay, and right at the city walls, right at the edge. And then down just east of that is the valley, the valley of, of uh, Jezreel that runs through there. Not Jezreel, but the, the valley that runs down through there. And then on the other side of the valley, just east of that, then, is the, is the Mount of Olives, okay? And this is where Jesus had spent the weekend. It's where he's going to spend each night during this Passion Week. He's going to leave Jerusalem, cross through that valley, back up the other side, and round on that road to the village of Bethany. Bethany was the village where Jesus could retreat each night of the final week. We looked at that last week, the reference in Mark 11:11. That was his, he would commute each night out there to sleep and then each morning back into Jerusalem for another day of ministry. And it's basically on the southeast uh, corner, the southeast ridge of, uh, of the Mount of Olives itself. Bethphage, B-E-T-H-P-H-A-G-E. Sometimes it's called Bethpage uh, by people that don't see the H in there. Um, it, it, it should be a, a P-H-F-sounding kind of consonant. Bethphage. It was the village where there was a colt prepared to bear him into Jerusalem. All right. And whoever this believer is, this owner of this cult and the crowd that he assembles actually has a perspective related to uh, Zechariah and Daniel that I find very admirable because even Jesus' own disciples were rather clueless as to how this event was prophetically um, uh, foretold and how this event was necessary, how this event was so significant. Uh, we just read that in the Gospel of John where they were really ignorant as to the uh, realities of what were being fulfilled here until later on, then the Holy Spirit would give them an understanding of how these things all, how these things all came together. All right. So uh, this gives you the idea on the geography. We'll have a map for you up here in just a moment. But this is uh, the unanimous testimony of all three, the synoptic gospels, Matthew 21, 1 through 5, Mark 11, verses 1 through 6. Luke 19, verses 28 through uh, 34. <clears throat> Sub point A. <clears throat> Jesus, and my voice has been fine all week until just this morning. 
And actually, it was fine when I was... We should go back in that other room where LaRosa and I were sitting. My voice was fine back there. Just the demons trying to stop stuff here. All right. So point A. Jesus instructed two disciples to fetch the colt. Now, we don't have the disciples by name. We can assume maybe Peter and Andrew or Peter and John, they were the closest to him. We don't know. It doesn't matter. If it was important, we, it would have, the text would have told us. But what we do find, we start to find, this is the first of, of, a, of a number of instances. They're very similar to the upper room preparations as well on Thursday night. He's going to send some folks in ahead of him to make sure that the upper room is prepared. And they're going to go in, two of them are going to go in ahead of him, and they're going to find the uh, owner of this place who has the, uh, the upper room is already prepared. It's already ready to go. And uh, some uh, similar details happen here. He sends two on in, and the preparations have already been made. They were there to administrate the details or administer the details, but the preparations were previously made. Why is this cult sitting here? <laughs> Why is this cult tied up outside the residence uh, near the, the front gate of the city? They were waiting and they knew exactly the day that they were waiting for. This day didn't just pop out of nowhere. This day has been planned for 490 years. All right. And a believer with doctrine had perspective to uh, prepare for this particular day. And I find that amazing. So they were to administer the details, but the preparations were previously made. And we, we notice that in all of the uh, synoptic accounts where he sends the two in and the cult is just waiting there. Okay, It's like, um, you know, you go to a place and there's a car uh, unlocked. The keys are already in the ignition. Maybe the engine's already running. All right. <laughs> you think, Wow. The driver's side door is open, you know, and there's a red ribbon on the driver, on the steering wheel. I mean, how much more of a clue do you need? Okay, I mean, how obvious can we make this, right? This is for you. All right. Secondly, now, Jesus anticipated that the cult's owners would have questions. In all these accounts, he said, they may ask you what you're doing. <laughs> all right. Simply tell them Yahweh has need of it. Okay. Yahweh has need of it. Jesus anticipated the cult's owners would have questions, but would approve the cult's prophesied use. All they have to do is say the word, and they're immediately, you have that adverb immediately, immediately. Yes. Yes, this one's for you. Yes. So Jesus anticipated that the cult's owners would have questions. You bet they'd have questions. They've been waiting. They've been waiting. And they don't know uh, if, if it's going to be the Messiah himself who's going to come and take this cult. Or, you know, it turns out he sends two disciples. Okay, They were expecting one and two show up. All right, so they're going to have questions. Is one of you the Christ? <laughs> Is one of you the Christ, one of you the herald? Now, if they knew anything about the Baptist, they know he already lost his head. But still, they're expecting the Messiah and two men show up to take custody of the donkey, of the colt. Okay, it's a donkey colt. And so... Um, they're going to have questions. And Jesus anticipated that said, just simply tell them, Jehovah requires this cult. All right? That's all they need to be told. I believe they spoke in either Hebrew or Aramaic. In either case, they would have used Yahweh. Um, I, you know, of course, we have the Greek record of this written in the gospel accounts. And so it's curios for Lord. But I think as spoken... Uh, it would have been, uh, it, it conceivably could have been Adonai, could have been my Lord, but I think the clear understanding of it would be Jehovah. It would be Yahweh. 
uh, Yahweh is who was prophesied to come in Zechariah chapter 9. So they would have uh, asked him these questions and uh, they would have been very, very eager to see Scripture unfolded in their day and age. All right, so point C. Both the animal and the day were biblically predicted. Both the animal and the day were biblically predicted. This isn't a stallion. This isn't a big war horse. Okay? This isn't, I mean, Alexander the Great was famous. And his horse was famous. Okay? But this is not a conqueror. Very important. Conquering will take place at second advent, where he will be riding on a white horse. But first comes the humility. Humble. Riding on a colt. Uh, this is an animal that barely can hold his own weight. All right, certainly not going to hold a, a warrior mounted in armor with armament and weaponry and all of that, and certainly not going to go charging in any kind of a battle. So here's the scriptures. Then Zechariah nine nine. We already read it technically because we have the uh, quotation of it in uh, Matthew twenty one. But let's uh, let's go ahead and look at Zechariah nine so that we can get the larger context for the prophecy plus it's uh, a neat preview for where we're going to be on Sunday <laughs> right and uh, you guys get the double portion blessing with a preview for Sunday morning remember in the context of Zechariah he's a post-exilic prophet along with Haggai they're trying to encourage the uh, returnees from captivity to be faithful and to finish the uh, the temple. And uh, it is interesting when these burdens were delivered. We'll discuss some of the context for chapters 9 through uh, 14 on, on Sunday. It could have very likely come years after chapter 8, in which case there is now a functioning temple. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, there is not a king of David seated on a throne. All right, Zerubbabel is a Persian governor ruling for the Persians and not on the Davidic throne. And that's important. And so it's in this uh, context where we have judgment that's mentioned. Look, look at chapter 9 and verse 1 of Zechariah. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place. And uh, then it talks about these other regions, Hamath and Tyre and Sidon. And, and uh, you go on down Ashkelon, you get Ekron and Gaza, the Philistine cities. And on down... To the, I uh, will remove their blood from their mouth in verse 7, and their detestable things from between their teeth. There will also be a remnant for our God. So there's judgment that's taking place here. But, verse 8, I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. That's an idiom that takes a lot of work. All right. Work we're not going to do today, and work we're not going to do on. Sunday, but we do have a tribulational application here and we do have end times eschatology in view. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes. And then verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river 
to the ends of the earth. All right, so we'll do more work on this on Sunday. But understand, we have here in this chapter, we have messianic prophecies as it relates to Jesus and what we today in the church age want to divvy up between first advent and second advent. Okay, but they're lumped together in the Zechariah record. They're lumped together in many of the prophetic records. In fact, we have to, in our rightly dividing, recognize verse 8 is second advent, verse 9 is first advent, verse 10 is back to second advent again. Okay? And don't, have, don't develop a problem with that. <laughs> okay? If you have a problem with that now, get rid of it. This is normal. This is the wisdom of God in keeping mystery doctrine um, withheld until the proper time for it to be unveiled. The prophets who searched of old made careful search of inquiry. They could not distinguish between the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It bugged them that they had these conundrums. They had these questions they couldn't answer. And uh, this, again, is part of God's wisdom. So there is going to be defeat of the enemies, uh, the oppressors. And there was a lot of expectation for that. This was what motivated the zealots. This is what motivated um, a lot of the folks. Hey, let's get rid of Rome. Okay, that's why we want a Messiah. We want to get rid of Rome. Well, it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen until second advent. First is going to come the king just and endowed with salvation. If he doesn't accomplish the work of salvation, why bother showing up to rule a Davidic throne? Why bother destroying Rome? Why setting up a political kingdom? First things first, salvation. So, there's a powerful message there, and one that we can be very thankful for, that uh, when you ignore the minor prophets, this is the kind of stuff you lose out on. All right, so not only is the animal predicted, he's going to be a humble king. He's not going to come as a conqueror. He's not going to come on a stallion, on a war horse. He's going to come humble, riding on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The donkey was, uh, was an, uh, a burden bearer, okay? Like our Savior's a burden bearer, isn't he? And the donkey's colt, the little foal, the young um, donkey, is what he's going to ride on. It's an expression of humility. Not only is the animal prophetically uh, given, but the day is prophetically given. In Daniel chapter 9, I want to spend some time on this. In fact, we could spend a month on this, but we won't. (laughs) Okay, Daniel chapter 9. My new Bible is still a little slow on some of these pages. My old Bible, you could just tell it, Daniel 9. It would flip itself. You went to Daniel 9 so many times. All right. This is uh, a little bit ahead of Zechariah now because Zechariah is post-captivity and Daniel is captivity, prophesying during the 70 years of captivity. And as those years were coming to an end, uh, Daniel's a bit concerned because... Uh, the Jews weren't very repentant, and uh, he's, he's concerned that uh, many of the reasons for which they were first sent into captivity still exist, so why would God bring them back? And uh, he promised them 70 years, but there's still a bunch of godless losers, and why, they're not repentant. Why would he bring them back? And God encourages them that, yes, you're a bunch of losers, but I said 70 years, and you're coming back. And uh, God's promises are based on God's faithfulness, not ours. But then beyond that, he comforts Daniel relating to the 70 years, but then he gives Daniel a much greater message related to 70 sevens, 70 septads of years. Okay? 
And a little bit awkward for us that we don't think in terms of septads. We think in terms of decades, you know. Um, and so uh, whatever that, you know, you turn 40 and now you're in your fifth decade or things of that nature. Okay. We don't think in terms of septads, but they did. Seven, of course, being a wonderful number and, and periods of seven years. And that's what we have here. Seventy sevens have been decreed. And uh, in verse 24, it says 77s. And we understand those are it's probably translated weeks in your English text, but it's sevens and it's seven years. So we can, if you want, just render it 70 septads have been decreed for your people and your holy city. All right. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. And where is Daniel's? What is Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. Exactly. Does this have anything to do with the church? Are we Daniel's people? No. Do we have a holy city? No, thank you. All right. <laughs> you're smarter than 80% of the you're smarter than 80% of the commentaries out there. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. This is a purpose related to Jerusalem, related to the Jewish people, related to applying the new covenant to them as a nation. And inaugurating the millennial reign. So you were to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven septads and 62 septads. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. All right, a lot of information that comes here, but we have a calendar that's being set forth. And it's a calendar that's very important. It's a calendar that ends on Palm Monday, the day we're studying today. To the day. All right. You're to know and discern. It takes study to put this together. And this is what uh, we've done in different studies in times past. And this is what somebody did in Bethphage. All right. And it's not a decree simply to rebuild the temple. It's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's an important consideration as well. There were a total of four different Persian decrees. <coughs> and all four of them have been considered at different times as far as do they relate to this verse. Which of those four decrees is the kickoff for this verse? Because whichever one you conclude, that's the one you have to start counting the 69 septads. And if you start from the wrong one, you end on the wrong date. Since they were all given on different dates. Now, uh, 7 and 62, of course, adds up to 69. And we're told, and if you want more of the detail on that, on the time it took to build and then the time after it was built, uh, how with, the, with plaza and mode, even in times of distress, then you need to read Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay? Those are the books of the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls. And it's the walls that are critical because it's the walls that makes it a city, a defensible city. Then verse 26, after the 62 septads, which is after the seven, so you could say if you want, after the 69th, critical. It does not say during the 70th. It says after the 69th. Please identify that because you don't have uh, the, the 70th seven until the final verse, verse 27, where we're told that he will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven. All right. There's one seven remaining after verse 25. 
Because 69 of them are done. And we're told in verse 26, after the 69th week. Okay, But we don't get to the 70th week until verse 27. That's huge. That tells us that there's a break between week 69 and week 70. And a lot of things happen in that break. After the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That doesn't sound very good. (laughs) That's the cross. Cut off is an execution term. Also, by the way, it is important to note it's Messiah the Prince. It's not Messiah the King. Did you pick up on that? Elsewhere, Messiah is called the King. Why is he not Messiah the King? Why is he Messiah the Prince? Well, in our hindsight, we understand that he's entitled to be king. He's heir to be king. He should be king. But until he claims that throne, until the Father seats him on that throne, he does not yet exercise that privilege or that title. And so Messiah the Prince is appropriate for the first advent ministry of Jesus Christ, who is heir to the throne but not yet enthroned. All right. And yet there's another prince in the picture too. Okay, there's Messiah the prince, and then there's the prince who is to come. He's also in verse 26. So after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. He returns to the Father with no kingdom on this earth. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. All right. Now, let's see if you're smarter than 70% of the commentaries that are out there. Um, Is Messiah the Prince the same as the Prince who is to come? Thank you. Because if Messiah the Prince was the same as the Prince who is to come, then who are his people? If they were the same, if, if Messiah the Prince is the Prince who is to come, then his people are the Jews. And you would have to say, okay, the Jews are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Why would they do that? Particularly when history tells us that it was the Romans who destroyed the city, right? And so if the Romans are destroying the city and they are the people of the prince who is to come, then what is the nationality or the citizenship status of the prince who is to come? He's a Roman. Very good. Excellent. You guys have had teaching before. All right. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be... Now notice, its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. Even with all of that, even with 70 AD, there is still more to come. There is still future war. There is still future desolation. Daniel's very good teaching about desolation and the abomination of desolation and so forth. So please understand, we have a calendar in this chapter. And this calendar starts with a Persian decree. And this calendar ends with the 69th week prior to the crucifixion and with the 70th week yet to come. Then he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And you have to say, well, now who's this he? And you back up and you realize the last mentioned person in the previous verse is the prince who is to come. The Coming Prince. That's why Sir Robert Anderson titled his book, The Coming Prince. The Coming Prince, the Coming Roman Prince, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop 
to sacrifice and grain offerings. See, this seven-year period is broken down into two three-and-a-half-year time frames. Time, times, and a half a time. Three-and-a-half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And will, on the wing of abominations, will come one who makes desolate, even till a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And that verse takes us all through the Great Tribulation. This verse takes us through Antichrist and how he defiles the tribulational temple, how he stops the Jewish sacrifices, how he takes his own seat in the Holy of Holies and demands global worship. And uh, a lot of this we take out of Second Thessalonians 2, we take out of Revelation 17, we take uh, from different places relating it here to Daniel chapter 9. All right, now the things we want to focus on for today uh, are not tribulation or even crucifixion. We'll be, we'll be there shortly. Uh, but again, I would highlight for you that it's after week 69, not during week 70. All right. That'd be like saying, we're going to do something after Thursday. And it's going to take us, you know, we're going to go on a two-week vacation after Thursday. And then on Friday, we're going to, like, wow, how do we squeeze that two-week vacation in there after Thursday but before Friday, okay? That seems weird. But that's what this text does. This text has, after week 69, a whole bunch of stuff. And then week 70, after a long gap, now it's more than 2,000 years, to verse 27. Just a little extra credit here today. Messiah, the cut off and have nothing, is, is Good Friday. That's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you want to put a Julian date on it or a Gregorian date on it, um, our modern date calendar system, you can call it Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. I still use A.D. dating. I know the liberals out there have changed to C.E. I'm not going to do C.E. Our homeschool doesn't do C.E. We do A.D., all right. I think that really has to bug them. The fact that our U.S. Constitution uses A.D. Our U.S. Constitution says, in the year of our Lord. Jesus Christ is in the U.S. Constitution. That I find interesting. All right. That's 33 A.D., but then what else happens? And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's 70 A.D. 70 A.D. That's 37 years later. So how many years are in that one verse? At least 37 years from 33 to 70. Okay. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. That even pushes you forward into future time. That's beyond 2010 at this point. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's at least 2010. Assuming that uh, we get raptured today and the tribulation somehow gets started between now and the end of the year. I think there'll be a time gap in between. I mean, there's 20, there's 37 years right there in verse 26. There could just as well be a, a period of time after the rapture before the prince who is to come makes a firm covenant with the many for one week. All right. So from the issuing of a decree, and again, I would highlight for you that there are different dates that you can handle with that. Let me just give you a couple of details here and we'll move on. Um, you can look up. I hope you have a Bible dictionary or some kind of a reference. I, I enjoy the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. It's one of my favorites. It has a good article on the donkey or the ass. So I'll read that for you here, and then we'll get the other article. 
it F11? There we go. Equus asinus. I'm not a Latin scholar, all right? The ass is of purely African origin. Three wild races are known. A Northwest African race, which is extinct. A Northeast African race, which, if not extinct, is close to extinction. And a Somalian race, which survives to the present, but did not play an important part in domestication. It was the second of these, the Northeast African uh, wild ass, the Nubian ass, which was believed to have been domesticated in the Nile Valley in the early historic times. And there's other reference works there. Uh, bones from this form have been found in Palestine at Tel el Duer and from between 3000 and 2500 BC. Okay, so that makes it even earlier than Abraham's time frame. You even have a photo. <laughs> a Palestinian ass. I wanted to put Yasser Arafat in there. And <laughs> I just. Anyway. Never mind. The first mention of the ass in the Bible includes male and female asses among the animals which Abram acquired in Egypt, Genesis 12:16. The ass was primarily a beast of burden. References there in Genesis 1 and First uh, Samuel. It was driven but never bridled. W.F. Albright has emphasized the widespread use of asses for trade by the 20th century B.C. In caravans up to th- of 300 up to 1,000, each carrying loads of 150 to 200 pounds. The donkey needed fodder and water and root. Now, keep in mind, 150 to 200 pounds. So an adult man could sit on this, but not if he was armored, not if he had uh, weaponry and battle equipment and so forth. Okay, So a child could ride. Um, you know, there's legends and traditions that the pregnant Virgin Mary rode a donkey, blah, blah, blah. But this is, the, this is not a battle horse. This is a humble donkey generally a beast of burden plus on top of that the one that jesus rides is actually a newborn is actually a colt a very young donkey um where was i all right needed fodder fodder and water en route hence way stations with cisterns filled uh, from dammed up wadis were built in the negeb and along the sinai road to egypt in abraham's time you know what a wadi is a wadi is a part-time river, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a dry gulch that during rainy season would fill up, and yeah, you didn't want to be, you had to be wary. I mean, even if it wasn't the rainy season, flash floods could come for inexplicable reasons. Um, from the time of the Middle Kingdom on, the ass was used for riding in Egypt, but only the Jews and Nubians rode asses regularly. The ass was also used for threshing grain and for pulling the plow. In Arab countries today, peasants plow with an ass and a cow or a camel hitched together. That actually was a violation of Mosaic law. Uh, law, however, forbade plowing with an axe and an ox. I'm sorry, an ass and an ox hitched together. No mixed plowing. The point being, you say, well, what's the big deal? It's a doctrinal principle of not being unequally yoked. There's a doctrinal principle being taught. And so you learn from the ritual and hopefully you glean the, the reality. The ass was rather... Highly regarded by the Jews, it was considered an economic asset. An individual had to have an ass for minimum existence. That was the the mark of whether you were completely destitute or not. If you had a single ass, then you weren't completely uh, destitute. Which is different, by the way, the Roman standard, by the way. The Roman citizenship standard was a single slave. (laughs) If you didn't have a single slave, then you were considered the most abject poverty of of a Roman citizen. 
The Jews had a little bit better perspective on that, I think. Uh, the individual's wealth was counted by the number of asses which he possessed. And examples there of Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 24, as well as Job in Job 1.3. The ass was an acceptable gift in Genesis 32. Uh, remember when uh, Jacob was trying to bribe Esau and kind of make it up to him for, for things there. The ass uh, shared the rest on the Sabbath day, Deuteronomy chapter 5. The book of Numbers records the most famous ass in the Bible, uh, that belonging to Balaam. In the Bible class he taught in Numbers 22. There were people of influence who rode asses in Judges 10, Judges 12, and 1 Samuel 25. Uh, the ass became a symbol of Messiah's peaceful coming. Zechariah 9, 9, and of course the quotation in Matthew 21, 1 through 7. There's a photograph of uh, an ox and ass hitched together for threshing near Jordan. Those would be Arab Bedouins that have no problem with Breaking Mosaic Law. All right. Elsewhere, the ass was almost universally despised. Apparently, its stolid temperament annoyed man. Uh, it has been considered inferior to the horse and the mule, and it has uh, been generally regarded as the beast of the poor. In other words, you only rode the ass if you couldn't afford a horse. Okay. Um, its patience has been likened to that of a slave, yet the milk of asses was supposed to have medicinal properties and was highly Regarded, The ass was often used to turn the large millstone of Roman times. Its dietary requirements are very simple. It can live on stubble, thistle, straw, and a very small amount of grain. So that's another advantage. Not only was it cheaper to, uh, for its upkeep, but it was less picky on what it, you could, you could graze more. It didn't require as much of the, of the feed that a horse would require. All right, so there's the article there. The other article I want to share with you is one by Harold Honer. I've, rec I've recommended this repeatedly. I'll recommend it again. Um, this was a six-part series of articles originally written in the Dallas Seminary Journal, Bibliotheca Sacra, uh, written back in the early 1970s. Uh, at the almost immediately, within a year of the finishing of this sixth part, uh, they were compiled into a book, and it still is an outstanding. It's still in, in print today. I don't know how many print, printings it's gone through, but it's very worthwhile. You know, I, I, I think if you were to have, you know, if you could only have two books in your Christian library, you'd want a Bible and you want Harold Honer's Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. I'm serious. It's that valuable of a resource. Okay, and then get a Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia and you'll, you'll be set. All right. Daniel, 70 weeks in the New Testament chronology. Now, um, I'm just going to skim through this just by way of reminder so that you understand what this, uh, the context of these 70 weeks. We've done a lot of this already. How we take uh, the Shabbatim as seven. It could be seven days, weeks, months, or years. We conclude that it's years for different reasons particularly because of the context of Daniel chapter 9. The terminus a quo of the 70 weeks. In other words, what's the kickoff for this calendar? Okay. What is the beginning of this calendar? Day one. And the four different decrees that you can, that you can uh, pay attention to. And as we highlighted, he also highlights, it's the building of the city, including plaza and moat, that has to be a fulfillment. And so... The very first decree of uh, Cyrus, we reject. The decree of Cyrus, 
that's recorded for you in Ezra chapter 1. Um, a lot of people use that as the decree, but it did not say anything about the city. It was only a permission to rebuild the temple. Okay, It was given on October 29th, 539 B.C., and, uh, but it was, had nothing to do with the city. It only gave permission to rebuild the temple. And uh, he goes and describes why that's not a valid fulfillment of uh, Daniel chapter 9. Gives us some of the arguments that some of the proponents use, and he answers them all, and I think he answers them all very well. Hmm. Yeah, I guess then you just don't have time to read through all of that. It's very excellent. So in conclusion then, it's most unlikely that Cyrus's decree marks the terminus a quo of the 70 weeks described in Daniel, and it, obviously it can't. All right, the second decree was, uh, was uh, another decree. Uh, per, they're all Persian decrees. Uh, the decree of Darius. It's recorded for you in Ezra chapter 5, verses 3 through 17. And... Uh, this is uh, it's really just a restatement of Cyrus's decree. Um, the governor of Judah, a fellow named Tatanai, questioned the Jews' right to rebuild the temple. Darius had a search that was made, found Cyrus's decree, and then he issued the decree himself in about 519 or 518 B.C. So it's about the time frame we're studying in the Minor Prophets, about the time of Haggai, the time of Zechariah, which are right in there in the 520, 518 time frame. And uh, Darius confirmed Cyrus's decree. Again, it has nothing to do with the city, and it's not really an independent decree. It's a restatement of Cyrus's decree, and uh, we don't want to use this as the kickoff to Daniel's message. Um, the third decree, third and fourth, are both by the same Persian king, the king by the name of Artaxerxes. The decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra. The third decree was a decree to Ezra in 457 B.C. It encouraged the return of more exiles with Ezra. He's going to take another batch uh, Zerubbabel had taken a few, and now Ezra is going to bring another batch. Um, the further enhancement of the temple and its accompanying worship, as well as the appointment of civil leaders. The details for this are all found in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. It is thought by men such as Pusey, Boutflower, Payne, and Goss, there's more too, uh, that this is the decree that marks the terminus aquo of the 70 weeks, and that the end of the 69th week brings one to 80, 26, or 27. Okay? And they use a date of 458 or 457 for the issuing of that decree. And so they say, well, if it ends in 8027, then that must mark the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And that's kind of how they come to their conclusions on that. But then they also go into issues where they have the seven years immediately follow, and they have those years follow and speak of the crucifixion at the midway point of the... They get kind of confusing after that. Uh, there are several problems with his view, and he outlines them. First and foremost, his decree has not a word about the rebuilding of the city, but rather the temple. And uh, even Payne himself admits that, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, the proponents of this theory say that a wall was permitted to be built since Artaxerxes gave unlimited freedom to use the leftover silver and gold. And because Ezra was to appoint civil authorities, and they assume that, well, those civil authorities would probably want to build a wall, right? Well... The leftover silver and gold was actually to be used for temple worship. And uh, the civil authorities were appointed for the purpose of judging and collecting taxes. They were not uh, assigned to build any kind of walls. All right, so there's more to deal with that, plus also the craziness about having week 70 immediately after that and having Jesus as the coming prince and stuff like that is just crazy. All right, 
Then the final of the fourth decrees, and this is the one that we accept, which is the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. Okay? Same Artaxerxes, but this is his decree to Nehemiah. And it's found in Nehemiah chapter 2 in 444 B.C. to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Several factors commend this decree as to the one prophesied by Daniel 9 as the commencement of the 70 weeks. First, there's the direct reference to the restoration of the city. Well, hello, that's what we've been talking about and all these other ones, uh, including the city gates and the city walls. Secondly, Artaxerxes wrote a letter to Asaph to give materials to be used specifically for the walls. And then uh, thirdly, the books of, uh, of, of Nehemiah, it's all one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, it's all one Hebrew scroll, um, indicates that certainly the restoration of the walls was done in the most distressing circumstances, which is what we read in Daniel 9.25. It will be built again in time, what does it say? In, even in times of distress. And so we have, the, we have the fulfillment there. And then finally, um, there are no subsequent decrees given by any Persian kings. Uh, if this one is not it, then there is none that exists. Okay? None that exists in biblical record or in secular Persian record. And it's interesting that we have this decree mentioned both. Mentioned in the biblical account, mentioned in secular accounts. That's important. God is making very clear to men and angels alike what his plan and program is. And so we accept, the, um, we accept that fourth decree in uh, 444 B.C. as being the... Being the um, the proper date. All right. More calendars. More dates. We've got to figure out when the 10th year of his reign is. And, or the, I'm sorry, the 20th year of his reign. The 20th year of his reign is when the decree was issued. 444 B.C. Um, if you do read The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson, I recommend it. But understand that you have to read it with Honer as a uh, remedy because um, uh, Robert Anderson was in the late 1800s and he was one year off. They, they, uh, he started it in 445 instead of 444. And their understanding of the Persian calendar system was not as accurate as it came to be after Robert Anderson's lifetime. So it's not Sir Robert Anderson's fault. It's just simply their understanding of Persian history was, was flawed. And so he used a date one year off on his calculations. Uh, otherwise, he was right on target, and Honer highlights all that in Honer's work, using 444 as the kickoff date and uh, accurately accounting for the, um, all the leap years and all the, uh, the other things in between. Okay. So Nisan of 444 B.C. marks the terminus aquo of the 70 weeks. You start with uh, 444 B.C. Now, when does it end? What's the terminus ad quem of the 69 weeks? If it starts in Nisan of 444, when does it end? Well, I already told you it ends on Palm Monday, 33 A.D. Okay? It ends on this day that Jesus sends two uh, disciples into Bethphage and says there's a cult there waiting for me. Untie it and let's let's go on into Jerusalem. Okay, that's when it ends. But there's some uh, a lot more homework to detail there. And we only have four minutes left. Where does this hour go? Did I start on time? Okay. Now, um, 
A simple approach is to say, okay, 444 B.C., uh, 69 sevens, it's 493 years or whatever that, 483 years. All right, so just boom, there you go. Okay, not so simple. Not so simple. You cannot use the modern solar year of 365.25 or 24221968.3 or whatever that is. Okay, um, that's not what this text uses. That's not what Daniel uses. That's not what the Bible uses. Okay. And uh, there's a long story and a short story, and I've got three minutes, so I'll probably have to give you the short story. Um, the short story is that each of these years is a 360-day year, 360, okay? Seven 360-day years is each one of these septads. And 69 of these 360-day years is, uh, is what we're looking at in the total prophecy. And so that works out to be slightly less than 483 calendar years. If you're going to include 365 days and a leap year every four years and, and, uh, and all of that. Now here's why. Not because it makes the math work, but because this is what the text uses. Okay? This is the same that's used in Genesis when Noah gets on the ark and comes off the ark. Five months later, 150 days later. Twelve months of 30-day months is what the old calendar used to be. And I believe that's what the earth's rotation was until the 8th century B.C. Every ancient civilization had a 360-day calendar. Everyone. The Babylonians, Persians, Chinese, Aztecs, Greeks, Egyptians. Everybody. I'm talking la di da Everybody had a 360-day calendar in the ancient world. Long about the 8th century B.C., um, that all started to change. And every one of those calendars, Aztec, Mayan, Inca, uh, Egyptian, Babylonian, Persian, Romans started to come along the scene in that very same, um, very same century. And then you had the fall of Troy. There was tremendous global earthquakes. Amazing things started happening in that, day, in that century, 8th century B.C. The earthquake of Uzziah, different things. Okay, Within... A hundred year span of time, every one of those cultures started to make adjustments to their calendars. Every single one. And they all found different ways to do it. And they all tweaked them in different ways. The Jews started creating leap months and adding extra months just so that they could start their new year again in the vernal equinox of the following spring. Uh, the Romans, it drove them fits because they were organizationally minded. Julius Caesar pulled his hair out and changed the calendar totally, gave us the Julian calendar for 1,500 years after that. Because he wanted winter to be in the winter and spring to be in the spring. And <laughs> he wanted order. That was his responsibility as the Pontifex Maximus. He had to fix the calendar. Okay? And Julius Caesar took every responsibility very seriously. So, anyway, my belief is that the adjustment to the Earth's rotation was somehow the tilt of the Earth, the axis was modified, the, the calendar changed, and... And that's the way it was. But in Scripture, God's promises continue on a 360-day basis. And I find that powerful. I find that wonderful. See? So, when you correlate Daniel, chapter 9 with chapter 7, with chapter 12, with Revelation, okay, you're going to find a few things out. You're going to find out that seven, the septad is broken down into two halves of three and a half years. And those three and a half years are called time, times, and half a time. Those three and a half years are called 42 months. 
And those 42 months are called 1,260 days. Okay? That's what the Bible does. The Bible gives us the calendar. We don't have to make this stuff up. We couldn't make this stuff up. 1,260 days equaling 42 months is 30-day months, 360-day years. All right? So that's the calendar God's using in the Scripture. Now, if you use that calendar, then you end up with 173,880 days. So let me get back here. Harold Honer, who's with the Lord now? He passed away uh, almost a year ago. It was Christmas time last year. And which is, I mean, I'm happy, I'm happy he's in heaven, but it's, it's, it's sad for his family, of course. But it's happy for the rest of us because actually when he did pass, Dallas Seminary realized how many of his works had been allowed to go out of print. Uh, the chronology had never gone out of print. The chronology had always stayed in print. But he has several other things, including a commentary on Ephesians. He had other works that were beautiful works that had been out of print for a number of years. And so after he passed last year, they, they put a lot of these other things back into print. And I'm glad they did. But Harold Honer has the best chronology of Daniel 9, and he tracks the 173,880 days of verse 25. 69 of these sevens. If each of these sevens is a septad of 360-day years, gives you a total of 173,880 days. Now, guess what, you, guess what happens if you start with that decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, the decree that he gave to Nehemiah, recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, in Nisan of 444 B.C. If you start counting those days, guess what happens when you get to day 173,880? And don't forget, there is no year zero. Okay? You go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Okay? Most of us weren't around back then to remember that. I'll just tell you. You go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Okay? Well, you count those days and it shows up right here. It, it brings you to Monday, March 30th, 33 A.D. Or Monday, Nisan 10, 33 A.D. The 10th of Nisan... Why is the 10th of Nisan? I'm, I'm three minutes long. I've, I've begged forgiveness. We're going to end in one more minute. The, why is the 10th of Nisan significant? The 14th is significant because on the 14th, the Passover lamb is slain. Wait, what is the big deal about the 10th? On the 10th, the Passover lamb is selected. The Jewish people would select the sacrificial lamb on the 10th of Nisan. And four days later, having selected that lamb, four days later on the 14th of Nisan, that lamb was slain. Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem humble and riding on a colt as the Lamb of God, selected by God, the one selected to be our, Christ our Passover. Selected, singing Hosanna, save us, Lord. And four days later, he's going to go to the cross. There's so much doctrine in this chapter, but we'll have to come back next week to deal with that. All right? We can go outside and get warm. How about that? You're all shivering. Okay. Father, thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. Father, you number the days. You number the hairs on our head. You know every detail from Alpha to Omega. Father, you are just so awesome. And uh, Father, I just thank you for your glory. Thank you for your son. Thank you for salvation in his name. And I pray in his name. Amen.